Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. Debt levels in Africa have been increasing in recent years, driven by several factors, including infrastructure development needs, fiscal deficits, borrowing for social programs, COVID-19, and most recently, the Russian war in Ukraine that has affected the prices of commodities. According to Data One, African countries owe debt to three categories of creditors, government, commercial lenders, and international financial systems. Still, the composition of African countries' debt has significantly changed. The current trend shows that African countries borrow less for multilaterals, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and more from China and private creditors, making most loans non-concessional. China has become Africa's biggest bilateral lender, holding over $73 billion of Africa's debt in 2020 and $90 billion in private debt. Even though China has significantly become a lender of last resort, China is still a minor player in the international financial system. Chinese bailout loans are much lower than the International Monetary Fund's lending portfolio and much less than the United States Federal Reserve's comprehensive international U.S. dollar liquidity support. The current trend shows that 21 African countries are in or at risk of debt distress. African countries owe $644.9 billion to external creditors as of 2021, an equivalent of 24% of Africa's combined GDP in 2021. African countries will pay $68.9 billion in debt service in 2023. The amount of bonds issued by African countries on the international market is triple in the last 10 years. This is an important topic. Joining me on Into Africa to make sense of Africa's states of indebtedness are David McNair, Executive Director for Global Policy at the One Campaign, joining us from Ireland. Judy Moore, Senior Policy Fellow at the Center for Global Development and former Minister of Public Works of Liberia, joining us from Washington, D.C. And Xavier Mwambwa, Senior Advisor within OSF, Open Society Foundations, Global Program, joining us from New York City. Gentlemen, welcome to Into Africa. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. So let's get straight to the point. What exactly is the state of indebtedness in Africa? It's very alarming. Everything that we've been reading through the news, through various reports, have been really alarming. I'll start with you, David. Thanks, Mumba. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is that one in five people on the planet live in countries that are in or at risk of debt distress. And this is a problem that's affecting 60% of African countries. So you've already mentioned African countries owe more than half a trillion. 
And on that debt, they will pay service this year, which is about 15 billion more than the aid that they receive. And that debt service bill is going to increase again next year. We've already seen defaults from Zambia, Ghana, Ethiopia, Chad. And what that means is that because they couldn't pay their debt and they've defaulted, they're downgraded by credit agencies, their cost of borrowing increases, and they're locked out of access to a lot of finance. For other countries to avoid debt, or to avoid default, sorry, they are prioritising debt service over essential spending. So in March, for example, Kenya chose not to pay salaries for civil servants so that it could keep paying its debt. We're facing a bit of a systemic problem that is driven by a number of of factors, and maybe we can get into this later. Um, One thing to say is that the problem is not that African countries have too much debt. It's that their debt is too expensive. And this is something that a lot of African leaders are raising now because of the way in which risk is apportioned to them by institutions like the credit rating agencies. They basically pay more than rich countries for money. And that is seen as a kind of systemic injustice that needs to be addressed. It's also a practical issue because if we want to invest in the clean energy transition, then you need access to cheaper capital. And there are ways we can do that through the World Bank and others. But the first thing we need to do is to kind of acknowledge that we need more finance, we need cheaper debt, and to do that, we need to reduce this African premium when it comes to the cost of borrowing money. So issues that you've raised there include the cost of money, the cost of borrowing, the cost of servicing debt itself, and then, of course, the need for more finance for these African countries. Xavier, what does that look like for you from your standpoint? Yeah, I think let me add to that list of the different kinds of costs. So using Zambia, which is one of the most recent cases, there's also the human cost of delayed resolution to debt default. So if we've seen the experiences of Zambia, it has taken them at least two years, if not more, from the time they applied to the common framework, which is sort of the multilateral framework set up to help creditors, borrowers and IFIs come together to resolve debt issues. So within that period, when Zambia is trying to negotiate with its creditors and the IMF, there are real-life implications back home. So obviously, because Zambia was locked out of accessing any new finance the whole period, it meant they couldn't access not only any more cheap finance, but any meaningful investment for them to grow the economy, grow jobs, and still be able to provide the social services. So there's actually a real human cost of not being able, the international system not being able to resolve uh, these cases in a very timely and speedy manner. So recently we put out a report that tried to show specific examples of what those costs look like in terms of number of children that are actually starving, literally people that are needlessly dying in hospital when otherwise they would not have died for that. So I think you can add a third cost, a real life cost of default to that. So this is really not just a technical issue, right? Like most of the discussion obviously have centered around what are the different technical solutions I think the technical aspects of this help us to understand how to move forward with the solutions, but the problem is a systemic one, as David said. So these two discussions must go hand in hand. If we're to come up with any sustainable solutions, we should stop focusing just on reactive technical solutions to get countries out of the current crisis, but also help countries prevent uh, themselves from falling into crisis down the line. So from what you're saying, international financial institutions have driven a new problem, or not new in the, in the traditional sense, but an additional problem to this with the human 
the cost on human factor. This is the starvation, is the social cost, what's how it affects everybody every day. Jude Moore, what do you add to this uh, basket of issues that is uh, is raising in these various countries? Well, thanks again for, for having me. I think I should, as the government person, uh, well, former government person, I should just go <laughs> yeah, back. Yeah. For African audiences and people listening to this, like there is always this accusation that is borrowing, it's frivolous. Why are they borrowing all of this money anyway? So first, there are very few countries in the world that are able to finance running government simply from taxes. Every country borrows. In fact, just in the U.S., there was risk of default because of raising the debt ceiling. So exactly like the U.S. and Japan and everyone else, countries have to. But that need to borrow is much heightened in Africa. In 1914, the total population of the continent was around 120 million. That's basically the population of Ethiopia today. Today, we are about 1.4 billion. It's an 11-fold increase in the population. Not even Asia wouldn't expand that increase at that rate. And that population is increasingly very, very young. So the amount of social spending that is required, the amount of infrastructure that is required, there is just not enough money generated within our economies to allow us to do this. So we're in this chicken and egg situation, right? You need the infrastructure for the economy to grow, but you don't have the economy to be able to borrow locally to be able to build that infrastructure. Ultimately, we have to seek external savings, whether that's from China, from India, from the international financial institutions, or as you noted before, from international capital markets. So... Because we need a diversity in the sources of finance, African countries, especially beginning in 2000, at least 21 African countries have gone to international markets to borrow. However, most African economies depend on, again, we're saying Africa, Africa here, but these apply in a lot of instances where we depend on one or two commodities, whether it's cocoa, it's gold, it's Zambia for the Chipolo Polo, right? And and what happens during times of external crisis, like COVID, when factories shut down in China and there is no demand for the commodities that we export, all of a sudden, the cost of borrowing your debt significantly rises because that was the only way of generating a revenue. So most of the international financial markets, when we go to borrow, they price that risk into our debt, making our debt really, really high, which means... We are just one external or internal crisis away from default. And that's basically what COVID did to most economies. And then just as we're coming out of COVID, obviously, we get the Russian invasion. So African countries are caught in this very, very difficult situation of where you need to finance social services and infrastructure, but your ability to finance them are significantly hampered. And so the need for external. So back to David's point, this thing of there has to be some way that we restructure the international financial system so that the cost of borrowing for countries in this situation is, is reduced. But more importantly, if we're all going to make the transition to net zero, then something has to change about the way we finance the infrastructure that gets us there. So I, I just wanted to, at least for, for the listeners, from the perspective of the governments that are making the choices to borrow, why do they do it? I just wanted to address that. Jude, this sounds like a classic case of fragility. What you've just described to me sounds like we have a number of countries on the African continent, if not the majority of them, who have a very fragile situation in which they find themselves. The resources they have seem to be limited in the way that one shock 
typically send them back to to zero, to level zero. But are there other issues internally in these countries that are driving that? This is not the first time we're going through this type of crisis. A lot of African countries have been independent on an average of about 60 years. Are there internal issues before we go back to the international system itself? I think the only thing I would add here is there have been instances, although I don't want to dwell on that, where some of the money we borrowed, the way the money was expended, there's still questions about that, right? And, and so that's one. There are countries that still have issues when it comes to public financial management. So the governance of public resources becomes an issue. I think that is something that African countries internally need to address. But that is less of a problem than the cost of borrowing. If Africans are looking inward, I think that's one. The second thing is, most times when governments want to build infrastructure, they borrow from the savings of their country. But in most African countries, savings rates are 20% or less. So there isn't enough resources generated in the economy, in the domestic economy, to allow the government to be able to, because ultimately, when we borrow, we borrow in currencies other than our own. So it means that we are subject to the whims of central banks outside the continent. So if they raise rates, then the cost of servicing our debt actually goes up. If there is a way that we can tap locally so that our borrowing is in local currency, it gives us significantly more control than it would when we do euro bonds or when we borrow it directly from external actors. So if there's one thing that we should address, definitely it has to be continuous improvement of public financial management within African states. Oh, this leads me to the point, Savior, as a Zambian, I'm Congolese, we know our countries, the two of them are the powerhouses when it comes to copper, cobalt, and other related materials. They've also benefited, at least theoretically, for major booms. So for DRC and Zambia in the 70s, there were major boom in terms of copper. We've just seen that boom again, even bigger, uh, depending on who's reading, throughout the 2000s, right, just recently. What happened? Why can't we, as African country, address that issue that Judah just raised about reserves, which are really savings? Where did money go? What happened during that boom that we find ourselves? So Zambia, DRC, just to use these two examples, what happened? There's obviously another connection to this, if that's, which is why the role of dependency on the commodities is very important and the nature of the extractive industries. So just like the nature of the creditors has changed for countries where we've moved from creditor list that is heavily dominated by official creditors and multilaterals to one which has more commercial creditors. If you look at the nature of extractive industry as well, post-independence, most of the extractive industries were owned by the governments. So at least had quite a good amount of leverage. But again, they still were raw material exporting under the whims of forex fluctuations, right? And price, commodity pr- uh, price fluctuations that they don't control, which is what saw Zambia, a good example, where it, it became from one of the richest sort of countries and had GDP in less than like 10 years. It just collapsed because of the, uh, the forex uh, fluctuations and commodity prices. I think governments need to find a way of really structuring the economy that one, they're not so much dependent on external ownership, Right now, even though Congo and Zambia, they own the minerals, but they don't control them. They are mostly in foreign hands, right? They're they're privatized. They don't have much control over the the commodity prices. In Zambia, for example, one company, Glencore, has not just ownership of the commodity itself, but it has off-take agreements and controls 
the marketing as well. So I think all these factors make the fact that you may have as many minerals in your country, but if you can't have enough leverage on the value on the value chain and the supply chain, then you have this mismatch between the value of the commodities and the actual apt intake of the revenue from, from that. On the other hand as well, I think data accountability, I think you mentioned more data accountability on the part of governments, borrower countries. I think data accountability goes both ways. A lot of the debt contracts now, especially the private ones, are really secretive, right? Like the terms, some of them are quite horrible and we only know about them after the fact when it's too late. So I think there's a way that we, we should insist on mutual accountability in terms of debt transparency and also a creditor who lends money to an entity or a country that they clearly know don't have enough governance systems, cannot repay back the debt, should have some responsibility. And this is where it comes to taking a fair share of the losses because of the responsibility that creditors also have in having judgments about the kind of onerous contracts that they, they end up pushing. And there's obviously the power and information asymmetry, right, when countries are negotiating for debt. So I think we need to connect all those different issues that would then work together to push us in, in, in a way that make it easier not to wait for debt default, not to just wait for restructuring, but to actually ensure that the deals that are being concluded right from the beginning would assure the, the, the most optimal accountability, both from the citizens themselves, but also from the creditors as well. African countries have tremendous engagement from civil society. African countries now, 60 years of independence, have a lot of experts. Jude is one, you are one. What is the role of those experts on that African side of the ledger when it comes to accountability? And what is the role, uh, David, of inst international financial institutions? We went through this decade, two decades ago, everybody was talking about odious debt. I don't hear people talk about odious debt anymore. But from what Savior just described, apparently within the odious debt structure or system, how do you see it and what kind of conversations are you hearing happening on the side of the Atlantic? If you look at the Jubilee debt campaign around the 2000s, that was clearly driven by geopolitical lending. US and other G8 countries lent to people that they wanted to keep in power and that money was spent on white elephant projects and so on. I don't think that's the same situation that we're in now, both because of the diversity of creditors but also because there are, of course, examples where this money hasn't been spent optimally. But actually, there have been massive infrastructure needs and massive infrastructure projects that have been, been developed. But I think it gets to, you know, we've talked about the economic and the humanitarian implications. But I think there's also an issue around the geopolitics of this, because I think there's a lot of anger among civil society and among leaders that African countries have been hit by these exogenous shocks that they had no role in causing the Global financial crisis started in the US housing market. COVID started in China. Ukraine was obviously a European issue. And they have been affected by these external shocks in ways that they don't have the capacity to respond. Layer onto that the fact that the response of advanced countries to these shocks has further compounded the problem. During COVID, there's a massive fiscal infrastructure, about 18% of GDP in advanced economies that helped fuel inflation. Um, and because of inflation in the United States, the Federal Reserve is now increasing interest rates. And because most African debt is denominated in US dollars, that's then increasing 
the cost. So they're not only hit by these shocks that are caused outside the continent, they're hit by advanced economies' responses to those crises. And that's why I think there is much, much more of a demand to say, actually, we want control over these institutions that determine our future. And you heard it this month with William Ruto, with HH, with Cyril Ramaphosa in Paris at a financing summit saying, we don't want more aid. We want control over the institutions that determine the rules that are fundamental to how we shape our futures. And that's the kind of key conversation at the moment. Like who has a say over decisions made at the World Bank and the IMF? Who has a say over credit ratings? The seat at the table. I mean, I think the campaign that has been put forward by the African Union for a seat at the G20 has been really powerful and is now you know, likely to, to kind of move forward. The question is, how will the African Union use that seat to kind of shape who has a seat at the table and who makes decisions over these fundamental issues? Because I think that's the real crux of the problem. I think President Cyril Ramaphosa in Paris used the terms beggars. I think he made it clear that Africans were not beggars. Jude, you have sat in, I presume, countless meetings, negotiation with these international financial institutions and other donors. Where are the fault lines and what can Africa do about it? Because when I look at the numbers here, they're pretty staggering. This is going to be... I'm not going to be very helpful here. This is going to be very difficult, right? Because think about the IMF, think about the World Bank. Voting is tied to shares. Shares are tied to the size of one's economy. And so it means that, so for example, there's the unspoken, unwritten rule that a European always runs the IMF and an American runs the World Bank. Just the combination of American and European votes allows that to happen again and again. So for African countries looking to exert more control or at least to increase their voice in these institutions, that doesn't happen without re-looking at how shares are allocated because shares equal voices. But it also means that there is a possibility here, though, that if African governments are, India has been doing well in trying to position itself as sort of a voice for the global south, India has written the G20 asking for a permanent seat for Africa. So I think if the African Union or Africans are acting more and more in concert with Caribbean countries, Pacific nations, Latin American countries, India, there is a possibility here of being able to advance an agenda that doesn't necessarily disadvantage them, one that increases their voice. But to your point, at least the, the conversations I was a part of in Liberia's situation would be different from other countries is that we were, we were coming out of a civil war. We went into those meetings with no leverage. We went into those meetings with no power at all. And a lot of African countries going into those might have slightly more power than Liberia did going into those meetings. But again, the dominant players have significant voice. And so I think to David's point and the point that African leaders have been making is that the continent has been a rule taker for such a long time, we would like an opportunity to be rule makers because there is a clear difference in what the rules look like when you have a voice in saying what the rules are. So rule makers is what Zambia is trying to do now and what exactly is the approach that Zambia is taking? If countries approach this geopolitical and dynamic as individual countries, it will be a bit difficult, right? Like you need to, we need to understand how the incentives, the different political and economic incentives are aligned. And obviously that is why it's very important to have 
harmonized united voices coming from either global south or even african countries themselves as a starting point so for example yes it's true that individual countries themselves may not have as much power or leverage but if you think about how african countries are arranged from geopolitical point of view they are the center of influence right everybody wants to use africa as a battleground for their whether it's natural resources or political influence African countries, a handful of them, control, have at least a majority of natural resources, including critical minerals now. So I think there's something to be said about African countries realizing that there's a power that they have, both the political power and the other kinds of power from natural resources that they can actually mobilize and enable themselves to, to configure themselves with a voice that can have more leverage. So, for example, we see countries like Zimbabwe, I think Congo recently and one other country is imposing regulation on, say, export of critical minerals, right? I think those are all points of negotiations. We see African countries trying to, for a long time, they've been trying to reconfigure themselves into these regional blocks, regional trading blocks, whether it's SADC, whether it's ECOWAS. And again, you, have, you can think about value chains and supply chain at the regional level. It starts changing the picture of an individual country like Malawi, a small country, or even Zambia. So I think the African Union can be can be that organizing platform where African countries start understanding these different geopolitical dynamics and then realize where their own power lies and then identify those sort of leverage points, whether it's through when they're engaging with IFIs or they're engaging with other big countries around that. So I think from the debt point of view, things like borrower coordination and borrower voices becomes important, right? And of course, it's very easy and very natural for countries to take very narrow nationalistic, self-interested position, but that simply lends them to be played off each other. So I think there's a way African countries can look at these things in a much more strategic way, because we saw how the geopolitics played, even in the case of Zambia, for example, in the debt negotiation. It was actually the geopolitics that accounts for a lot of the delay. It's because creditors themselves were either looking for ways of gaining more influence, or creditors maybe like the U.S., didn't want any form of relief going to Zambia to end up with China in form of Zambia just paying debt repayment. A lot of that was really about the geopolitics around that. So inserting African voices, African power in that can probably help break that geopolitical dynamic that has a negative impact, as opposed to African countries being passive recipients of rules and, and just waiting for their fate to come. I think there's a way that African countries can be a bit more proactive. We are in the middle of uh, what we're calling now great power competition. And when I look at the data, there is nothing that is more interconnected than this debt problem. So we spent some time here discussing about the responsibility of Africans. But it seems to me like there is no way that anybody else, creditors, MDB, can extricate themselves out of this. I'm just looking at the number here. On the bilateral front, the top creditors, of course, China, France, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Germany, Japan, United Arab Emirates, India, the United States, and Italy. On the multilateral side, I'm seeing IDA, African Development Bank, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, European Investment Bank, Islamic Development Bank, Arab Fund for Economic and Social Development, Africa Export-Import Bank, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, the West African Development Bank, and the OPEC Fund for International Development. So it seems like everybody is really involved here. David, what is the way out? Is there any shared responsibility that countries and funders, 
and private are taking seriously. The problem that we've seen over the past couple of years is that it's almost like each of the creditors is kind of standing, pointing to the others, saying, you move first. That's been the dynamic in the debate in, in DC is all about how this is China's fault. If you look at the pan-African level, China, both private and public creditors, holds 12% of Africa's debt. Private creditors, bondholders and banks, hold 40%. So I think there's this dynamic where the US blames China. China then says, well, what about the private creditors, which they see as Western institutions? And then the private creditors you know, aren't, have no incentive to come to the table at all. So I think that's why... If there was a structured process with timelines and deadlines and so on, it would be in everyone's interest to take early haircuts to make sure that problems were resolved quickly and that economies could start growing again and borrow responsibly, invest responsibly and so on. But because the incentives politically and economically are misaligned, there's just this stalemate. And until we have those rules in place and much, much more transparency about who owns what, I think this isn't going to move forward. Um, I think actually we have seen some encouraging signs in Zambia and Ghana around the creditor committees offering what they call financing assurances, which is basically that they will participate in restructuring discussions in good faith. And that has unlocked you know, IMF lending that has allowed the countries to keep the lights on in a way. So I think there are encouraging moves that this is less of a kind of point the finger and more constructive cooperation. But it's still happening on a case-by-case basis. And I think we need much more of a structured conversation about if a country gets into difficulty, they apply to this institution, they'll wait two months for this, three months for that, and it will be dealt with in a meaningful way. Unless we have those rules, then it's just the Wild West. You said China controls about 12%, 40% private. I'm looking at the data for the private here. It's pretty impressive because you have bondholders on top then you have China, then you have a bunch of other more, United Kingdom, UAE, France, USA, Israel, Italy, the Netherlands. That's on the private side of the ledger. What is the percentage of this that the West control, if China is 12%, roughly? I don't have the figures, but it's the vast majority. And I think when you say the West controls, I mean, these are kind of private investors, but so many of those contracts are enforced under UK and New York law. So actually, the UK and the US have a lot of leverage over how these private actors respond and the incentives that they have to participate. And that's why we need legislation in those jurisdictions. Jude, how do we get out of this, considering everything that we've discussed? So, I, uh, yeah, if I had an answer to that... Don't disappoint us. How do we get out of this? If I had, if I had an answer to that, I'd probably be, I'd probably be a rich man. I, I think, to David's point, though, that the first you know, around the Jubilee campaign, that big debt problem, the Paris Club was responsible for most of the debt. Western, industrialized Western countries were what it was. Over time, though, they have reduced their leverage. For example, the U.S. doesn't lend directly like that. And so China has come up to be probably the most important bilateral creditor, not because of the total amount of debt it holds, but that in several countries, it is the largest bilateral creditor. However, this conversation of China being obstructionist is not exactly correct because during the DSSI... What's, that, what's DSSI? Was the Debt Service Suspension Initiative that was put in oh. place during COVID to help countries. About 63% of the $13 billion that were, so, uh, suspensions were made, 63% China alone accounted for. 
there was an argument that the Chinese made. They they saw the World Bank and, and other MDBs as Western policy banks. Now, obviously, they've walked back on that a bit. So one is this thing the IMF is calling geoeconomic fragmentation is happening at exactly the moment when we need the world to work together. So what should we do and how do we get out of this? I think the first thing is, it may not be, for, for people who are not following this every day, it, it might not be much, but this thing where we're seeing African presidents talking as if they're reading from the same script, it's been a long time since we've seen that. That's a really good thing, that we have a common Africa position and every African president is harping on that position as one. So we're showing up and acting in concert, and that's a very important part. As I noted, number two is to be able to act with other regions. Individually, we're just not powerful enough. And, and so act with other regions who share similar issues. I think that will help us to get out of this. And then thirdly, it will be we have to do the things that we need to do domestically to improve the economy. That African interaction and African trade with each other on the continent remains in the, the high teens. Something has to change about that. And one of the things I think was Landry Signe who noted that when African countries trade with each other, they trade more in manufactured goods than when they trade with the rest of the world. And it is in manufacturing that you add value and increase the value you extract from it. So I think those are the three things that I would recommend. One, increasingly, the continent will act as one and speak as one, and all those leaders will speak from the same talking points. Two, the continent will act in concert with other regions to be able to increase the, its voice. Thirdly, we'll focus on domestic programs like the AFCFTA so that we're generating more of our value from trade with each other and not as dependent on the rest of the world. Those three things, I think, will help drive us in that direction. Xavier, what would you add to Judah's recommendations? One more layer to that is, in order for, for there to be the right kind of political incentives domestically, right? We, I think we need to build a specific level of political pressure. And this can only come from the work that NGOs do, the media, and the ordinary public. So they are, they are interested in the link between these issues and their everyday lives. Because it's about what will force politicians to act in a certain way. It's the fear of them losing power through an election or the reward of them winning power if they actually deliver something that is much more sensible for the ordinary people. So it's very important to have another layer of building power domestically, keeping the political pressure on the elected leaders so they act in the right way. Because politicians, they tend to have very short-term, narrow interest, right? They, they only look over a five-year term. When they come to these international forums, we can assume they're acting in the interest of their countries, but it's not always the case, especially when they're cutting backdoor uh, deals. So I think we need that sort of pressure for them to be transparent, to be accountable to their voters. And part of that will involve them understanding exactly the implications of them not making the right choices. So I think that David's group and others and the philanthropies that they try to support civil society work and grassroots movements in our countries, because I think that's where the power lies. We don't have a lot of corporations. We don't have a lot of local private sector that would really use their lobbying power the way in the West it happens. And we don't want to create that vacuum for that kind of narrow corporate interest. So we need really to build political power in our countries. David, from your advocacy, you are heavily involved. One, the one campaign that is with policymakers. Any recommendation before we close this? I mean, I think the first thing is that citizens should realize that their voices matter and have power. 
Um, I mean, if you look at per capita, the votes in the IMF, a US citizen's vote at the IMF per capita is 60 times that of an Ethiopian's. So, you know, if you're sitting in the US and you think you don't have leverage over this, you have a lot more leverage than the people who are affected by by those issues. So I think we need to kind of build solidarity between citizens that are affected and those who have power to change things. The second thing is just on the on the kind of long-term strategic vision. I think we need to kind of flip the narrative in some cases. You know, a lot of the perceptions in Europe and North America are that Africa needs those countries for donor resources or support or whatever. I think if you look at the trends, whether it's on demographics, on critical minerals, on geopolitics and votes at the UN, Europe needs Africa. The US needs Africa. Um, Just take demographics, for example. By 2050, Africa will add more than 700 million people to the workforce. At the same time, Europe will reduce its workforce by 150 million. So I think we need to kind of reorient how we're thinking about these partnerships and make our policies and our strategic decisions in light of that because so much of the perception that's driving the politics and the political decision making is just outdated. If I hear everybody today, David McNair, Xavier Mwamba and uh, Jude Moore, we're really in need of a serious paradigm shift and the way we approach debt and that supply chain of debt. Gentlemen, really would like to thank you for joining us today. David McNair of the One Campaign, Xavier Mwamba with Open Society Foundation, and Jude Moore with uh, the Center for Global Development. Thank you very much for coming to into Africa. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long.